Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Sherry. Good evening, or to some of you that are listening in the morning or in the afternoon, good morning and good afternoon. It's so nice to see so many faces, both in the rooms and those faces that I can't see. So I want to start with a prayer. Just who are you? Sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm Sherry Z, recovered compulsive overeater, recovered, not cured. Um, Hi, Sherry. Nice to see everybody. So I just want to start with a prayer, just to settle myself a little bit. God, help me set aside everything I think I know about you, about the program, about the big book. Help me to let in a new experience so I can be a messenger of your wisdom, of your hope, and let us say, Amen. Amen. So I understand I have a fair amount of time to speak, so I've made some notes because over the 33 years that I've been in these rooms, there is a lot to say, and in some ways there's very little to say. And I think the last time I spoke on this meeting was over 10 years ago. So it's been a while since I've said something. So as I started, I am Sherry Z. I'm recovered, not cured in this program. Um, I'm maintaining one year and a little over a month of continuous abstinence. Um, that being said, I define abstinence very different today than I did in the 33 years. So I've gone long periods of not having sugar and flour, but I'll explain my story and I'll tell you what happened and what it was like. So I'll just start at the beginning. I grew up in a family with very disordered eating. And I used to go into details of that, but I just know that it was not organized eating. And I have a family today of five children and I know what non-disordered eating looks like because my children don't compulsively overeat except for one of them and God will be in charge of him. And I knew from a very early age that something was deeply wrong in our household both by the way that we functioned, the way that we ate, the way we talked to each other. The house was just not healthy. But I didn't know what that meant or what I was supposed to do about it. And so what I learned was a few lessons early on. One was Um, try to control everyone and everything. Mm -hmm. Just try to control it. Mm Because if you can contain it and control it, it will be okay. The second thing I learned was just be perfect. Mm -hmm. The the thinner I was, the better. Um, That if I was thin, then everything else would be solved. And so it looked in the beginning like a lot of restricting. And in high school, I struggled with anorexia. But just to that fine edge where you didn't need to go in the hospital, like just enough that I could manipulate it enough. And my first year of college, the minute I left that house, I gained 50 pounds playing for a competitive tennis team on a national team. So the volume of food I was eating on my frame was extraordinary. Um, I'm maintaining about a 40-pound weight loss today. I don't know my top weight, but I have a picture, but you can't see the picture on the audio, so I'll share it after. But I learned try to be perfect in everything, at school, at home, just be perfect, be quiet, 
and just do everything right, and then everything will work out, except that that's not what worked. The other thing I learned was be entirely self-sufficient. So do it on your own. Don't ask for help. Make sure that you got it. And if you don't got it, you get it, right? And there was no question that I was going to get it. Um, It wasn't a question of if. It was a question of when. Mm -hmm. And so my mind was constantly going. It was constantly going whether I was trying to be perfect, whether I was trying to control my relationships, whether I was trying to be per- like trying to be self-sufficient, I was constantly wired. And so I was constantly moving and people would be like, oh, you're so happy because I was constantly like a big smile on my face, you know? And I knew that my brain chemistry wasn't right. I knew that it wasn't right around food when in fourth grade I wanted the exact same thing at the lunchroom line. And everybody else would alternate it every day, but I wanted the exact same thing. I don't know if we mentioned food, but it was all sugar. It was basically just all sugar, and I wanted the exact same thing. And if I didn't, they didn't have these particular sugar chocolate things, I would have a tantrum. Mm -hmm. Like, I was the fourth grade table head, and I was having a tantrum because Mm -hmm. I knew that that's what I wanted. And I would make the hot chocolate so that the chocolate would be at the bottom so I could eat just the sugar out. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I... I couldn't stop once I started. So I had a lot of false starts because I thought if I just stopped and didn't start, then it would be okay. But then life would intervene, and I would get angry, I would get resentful, I would get rageful, and this buildup of human emotion would just take me down, and then I would just have to go to food. And I believe the food was the solution, and it was for me for a long time. Even in the rooms, the food was the solution, and I'll explain that. But the food was the solution for a long time for me because my life, my parentals, my brother, it was intolerable. So I went to the food for comfort, for love, for safety, for security, and it did that. And I knew exactly what foods did what feeling. So I was angry. I ate a certain food. I was sad. I ate a certain food. And all I ever wanted was to be thin, but all I ever wanted to do was eat. So it's constantly in this cycle. I want to be thin, but all I ever want to do is eat. And that every time the emotional would win over the intelligence, I would say to myself, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat. And it would wear me down, and then the emotional would win out. And the more I ate, the fatter I got. The fatter I got, the more I ate. It just was a cycle. And I remember seeing someone who was like 500 pounds in the street and thinking, there's no difference between me and her because I'm just eating my way up to it because I had just gained 50 pounds. It wasn't like I'd gained 50 pounds slowly. I gained 50 pounds over a few months. So I knew that it was just skyrocketing. And I wanted to eat no matter the consequences. And then when I have the consequences, I would say, never again, never again. I'm not going to eat. But then I would have amnesia, and then I would eat again. And it was this cycle of abuse to myself. And it became really so profound because it worked. When I was eating, it comforted me. There was that moment of like, (sighs) I mean, I put that in my body and I could feel that sugar go down. And my dad had a problem with drugs and alcohol. My brother had a problem with drugs. Both my parents were bulimic. I don't like to always say that, but... It worked. This was our family ethic. This is what we do. We are addicts, you know? And so addicts use the substance in order to quell 
life because life was so hard for me to live. So I wanted to eat with no consequences. So what happened? In 1999, I was transferred colleges, and I was in Chicago, and my mother, who had been in and out of the rooms for years, suggested I go to a meeting of OA. And I walked into this meeting, and this woman was sharing that she was divorced, and she was probably younger than I am now. And everything she was saying about her life, I did not understand. She was getting divorced. There was financial issues. I did not understand any of it because I was 19 years old, on my own, going to college. But everything she said about the program I heard, that you didn't have to use food to quell this anxiety and fear and everything, it just made sense. And I knew I was home. And I started from that day working the program, and my first sponsor was from CA, Cocaine Anonymous. And by the way, I've never smoked a cigarette or done drugs, not because I'm so pure of mind, but because my father was so into them, I just was afraid that that would take over. So my first sponsor was from CA, and she all she did was take me through the steps through the big book of AA, and I got a tremendous amount of recovery. I got freedom from sugar and white flour, and I was in college, not drinking, not eating sugar, not eating, and I believed in God, so this idea of turning my will and my life over to the care of God just made perfect sense. I was like, God, I don't get this. You take it. It's all yours. I don't get this. I'm not doing it right. Um, But I would say that I believed in God. I trusted God. 85%. Like there was still this 15% of lingering lack of trust that I would then struggle with for the next 30 years in program. And I, the journey was that my goal was to get abstinent. And I would sit in the rooms and everybody would say, you just have to be abstinent from flour and sugar. But what I didn't understand is that I would get abstinent from flour and sugar, but I wouldn't be serene. I wouldn't be calm and neutral. My mind was still... And I thought, something is like severely wrong with me. Like, something is severely wrong with me because it talks about in the big book that you put down your substances and you're going to get the fifth step promises and the ninth step promises. So, but I wasn't getting the fifth step promises. And on page 75, I'll just read it to you. I brought my picture. I can pass it around. For those of you that are listening, it's hard to see. Um, But on page 75 in the big book, the fifth step promise said, um, I'm sorry, not on page 75. Forget that. I don't know why I wrote that down on the fifth step. Oh, sure. Sorry. There's 75 on this this step. It says, we pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. This is what we do in the fifth step. And once we've taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. And I had taken the fifth step, except that I still had a lot of people I hadn't been able to look in the eye. Like if I saw them, because as I was living life, more people were mounting but I wasn't constantly working the fifth step on them. I had done my fifth step, and I was like, okay, now what? So, and I wasn't getting what I understood as the ninth step promises, which are on page 83, which for those of you that like the big book as I do, um, it will say, if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, 
we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. So I felt freedom and happiness, but I didn't feel it entirely. And when life would get lifey again, I would go back to the food, except it looked very different. So when I went to the food when I was before at 19, it was buckets of ice cream. But when I went to the food in recovery, it was sugar-free cookies. It was sugar-free candy. It was sugar-free this. It was soda. It was gum. So it wasn't that I wasn't abstinent. I was abstinent from sugar and white flour, but I still, the compulsion was in me, and I still was going to things and eating larger portions than necessary that my body didn't need. And I was still searching for a solution. So I didn't have what I would call food neutrality, and I had one hand in God, but one hand still in the food. Mm. Just like, I'll just have that sugar-free cookie. Everything was sugar-free. Everything was in the realm of abstinence, but it was still keeping me imprisoned. And I did this for years and years and years. I never left the rooms, actually. I consider my journey beginning on ni- in 1999, 33 years ago, because that is the moment that I surrendered. I didn't completely surrender, but I began the process of surrendering to God because I knew that I no longer could do this on my own. So I was still prideful and arrogant. I would take jobs, and I would sort of act out, and then I would come and tell my sponsor, and I would say, like, I acted out, and then we would talk it through. But I would still have these raging defects of character, and the raging one was rage. The raging was with rage because that was the one that really tormented me. And so um, I seemed to have this mental blank spot of amnesia, that something was just, I I kind of surrendered or got to the point where I'm going to not eat sugar, I'm not going to eat flour, but I'm still going to be a crazy person. And I'm going to constantly be battling these 15 pounds up and down because if my food got big or small, then I would say, oh, I'm still abstinent, but I would gain weight. And my clothes would fit or they wouldn't fit, and I would go between a size 4 and a size 10 back and forth between these 15 pounds. And I got to the place where, you know, I worked steps 1, 2, and 3 over and over again. I would get up in the morning, I'd say, I'm powerless over food, came to believe there's a power greater than me, and then I made a decision to turn my will over. But it was like a cycle of 1, 2, 3 over and over again. And I would tell myself a lot of lies. Um, It's not as bad. It's not what it used to be. This is a good enough. You know, I'm not, this is the journey. It's progress, not perfection. I would tell myself a whole set of lies that this was enough because that's all I could do. Because I couldn't imagine that freedom was something that I could have from food. And I was still looking for the right nutritionist, the right food plan. I was still on the hunt for who would bring me the, the answer. Because I still believed at my core belief that the answer was if I got my food right, then I would have my life right. Mm-hmm. And that fundamental belief had to be shattered. Food was not my problem. Food was my solution. It was always my solution. My problem was life. My problem was living this life with all this human emotion and all these different things. So going along, I'm in the rooms, I go to COVID, and I am drinking matcha lattes at COVID in my room like there's nobody's business. They're abstinent, but I gained 20 pounds drinking that oat milk just over and over again. And I thought to myself, I'm insane. 
And I remembered thinking that in the big book, there were three types of chronic drinkers. There was there was a chronic drinker, there was a moderate drinker, and then there was a hard drinker. And I used to say in the rooms, when people got absent, I think to myself, oh, she's not chronic. Oh, he's a moderate. Like, I have so much judgment for people. Like, you're not that because you got abstinent so quickly. Because I was constantly evaluating people's abstinence. Like, oh, you're abstinent from sugar. By the way, I was abstinent from sugar and white flour. And so I didn't understand how I was gaining weight because they said if you put down sugar and white flour, you're abstinent, you will be sane and you will get the nine-step promises. But they weren't coming. Some of them were. I had freedom from financial insecurity. But I still had rage. I had... um, a sense of levity and joy, but I still had anger, right? And I thought, well, I'm not going to become the Buddha. It's good enough. So what happened? Um, A friend of mine was in program coming almost the same amount of years as me, and she was talking differently. She looked different, and she was talking different. And she was like me. She was always gaining 10 pounds up and down in the rooms. She had a lot of recovery, but she looked totally different. And she said she had food neutrality and that it didn't matter if she walked into an ice cream store, the food didn't call to her. And I was like, okay, I don't believe that. Like, the food will forever call to me because I'm a hard, compulsive overeater. I'm of the third category. So I called her and I said, what are you doing? And she said, you know, I had to put down all of my foods that caused me to compulsive overeat. That was step zero. And that's when, and I had to rework the steps. So she told me everything that I had to do that she did. And I was like, thank you so much. And I hung up. (laughs) Because the thought of what she was telling me to do was insane. It was like two to four hours of step work a day. And I was like, of course, if I devoted two to four hours of step work a day to my recovery program, I mean, you do two to four hours of anything every day, you know, my God, you're going to get perfect at it. And she said, I promise you. It's three months of intensive hospitalization where you do two to four hours, but you will find on the other side food neutrality. And then she asked me the question that I think I will never forget. She said, had anything I've ever done worked? And I thought about everything I'd ever tried, like everything, going to meetings three times a week, going to meetings five times a week, calling this sponsor, calling that sponsor, calling two different sponsors, calling my food in, calling my food out. Like literally everything I had done and nothing had worked to give me freedom. The second thing she said, how free do you want to be? Because I realized I was pretty free. I was 85%. She said, do you want to be 100% free? And I was like, yes, but I don't believe it's possible. Mm. Then she asked me, what was I resisting? And would I set aside all my old ideas to have a new experience? Which means that, Sherry, you are no longer in recovery for 30-some-odd years. You have one day. That means that you are going to be recovered for one day. And I was like, oh, my God, I just spent 33 years in these rooms, and she's telling me I have zero days of abstinence. She was like, yes, you're going to have zero days of abstinence. She said, what you're going to do is we're going to study the big book through page 160. And I realized something profound. I had been praying, but in my spiritual life, I always studied. Because prayer to me was how I spoke to God, but studying was how God spoke to me. 
but I had never studied in the rooms. I had never studied each word and what it looked like and what was it. Was it a promise? Was it a warning? Was it an instruction? I never looked at the words that I didn't understand because in the big books, some of the words are like completely random old English. <laughs> I never, I never looked at them. I never changed the we to I. I never really like sat there and dove into it, which was my heritage. My culture was very much about studying and learning and dissecting. She said, we're going to study it. And she said to me, this is not a program for people who want it. It's not a program for people who need it. This is a program for people who do it. So if you do it, you're going to recover. And if you don't do it, she's like, but you're not going to be cured. And I was like, okay, I'm fine not being cured, but I'm curious enough about what it means to be recovered as opposed to abstinent. So the first thing we did is we looked at all the foods that I ate, and it turned out my list of trigger foods that triggers the mental twist in my head is far bigger than white flour and sugar. And I don't want to scare any newcomer because everybody's food plan is different. But I have that third category, hard compulsive overeater. And I needed to put down a lot of things that other people do not need. And everybody's abstinence, what their food plan is, is up to them. But my food plan, there were foods that triggered me that I had no idea. Rice. It doesn't white flour. It's not um, sugar. But I should have known better because in the tradition they used to, in ancient Judaism, they used to get white flour and rice mixed up. So I should have known better that my body doesn't like that. I also learned that I was entirely sensitive. I thought sensitivity was my weakness. Sensitivity was my superpower. I was sensitive to a lot of foods. And it turned out I was allergic, actually allergic to a lot of them, even though I still ate them. Like, I carried an EpiPen. This is how insane I was. I carried an EpiPen and would eat foods compulsively and then take the EpiPen because that's what the definition of insanity is. I don't do that today. I don't even carry an EpiPen anymore because I don't eat those foods. So first, step zero was putting down every food that triggered the mental twist. And for me, it wasn't just the food. It was the mental twist that my head then went to this place of, you're a piece of junk. Something's wrong with you. You're never going to survive. Why are you here? You're not enough. It was that other people put a cookie in their mouth and were like, oh, a cookie. I put a cookie in my mouth. I wanted the entire bag, and then I wanted to beat myself up for the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. That was the mental twist. Other people would eat something and be like, oh, my God, we're having dessert. It's a holiday. I'm on a vacation. I didn't have that. I had, I'm on a holiday. I ate a dessert. And then I want to suffer through the rest of the holiday and not put on a bathing suit and not go out with my friends because I'm a piece of junk. That was the mental twist, that I couldn't stop thinking about what I ate the day before. So almost a year to the day, I called her back. It was actually a year to the day. And I said, I'm willing to do anything you tell me. And this was November 1, 2021. And it was so much work. It was so much work. And... What she kept saying was, would you trade a moment of pleasure for a lifetime of happiness? And every time I thought, oh, my God. But I realized once I put down all the foods that triggered the allergy, the allergy was lifted. But the mental twist was still there because I'm not a regular eater. People that go on diets, they just put down the foods. They lose the weight, but they don't have the mental twist. I have the mental twist. So what happened was that... I had to rectify the mental twist, which meant that I couldn't live in 1, 2, and 3. I had to live in steps 10, 11, 12. That every day 
I would have a buildup of human emotion with resentments and anger, and I had to work those steps like my hair was on fire. Mm. And I always sponsored people, but I didn't really know what to do. But because we worked the steps so closely through each page of the big book, I now was asked to work with sponsees and teach them how to go through the steps. And where I used to be like, I don't really know, I don't really know, suddenly I was like, you got to work this step this way. This is how you got to work it. And if I don't know, you got to ask someone else. And what I discovered was living in 10, 11, and 12, living in the steps, gave me this pathway that when life became lifey, food was not what I turned to. I turned to the steps. So it's like, I hate my boss. I don't want to quote that, but I hate my boss. But what I learned is I didn't have to hate him all day, every day. Mm-hmm. I could resent him from the moment for what he had done. I could work st- step 10 on it, then pray and meditate, and then work with the newcomer or work with someone else. And that obsession would be lifted because I was addressing the mental twist, not the food. That has given me complete freedom. So I want to tell you what I've learned in the last few minutes. Um, People used to say food is not an option. Food was always an option for me. Mm -hmm. I could always figure it out. I could binge on broccoli. Like there is nothing that I can't binge on. Food was always an option for me because I'm sneaky, I'm cunning, I'm conniving. These are my defects of character, some of many. But I'm also loving, honest, full of integrity, kind, spiritual. So what I've learned is food is not an answer that I choose today. It just doesn't work for me. The second thing is there is never going to be conditions in my life that will make it right for me to put down the food. Like, my life will never be such that it will work that I'll just be like, I just want to put down the food. Because I ate when I was happy. I ate when I was sad. I ate when I was frustrated. I ate in all kinds of emotions. I never just ate because I was upset. I ate if I was happy, overjoyed. I ate as well. So there's never going to be the right circumstances to make it so that my eating is right according to this random structure that exists outside of me. The third thing I learned is anger is a poison that corrodes the vessel that contains it. I had a lot of anger. I had so much anger and I couldn't deal with it. I still am angry. I don't see myself as an angry person, but boy, I have like, <laughs> like you say something I don't like and I, the snarls come out, right? And once my dog bit me and I remembered thinking to myself, I want to bite people, right? Like, it was like, I was that angry, you know? And, but it is a poison that it corrodes my spiritual life, and my spiritual life doesn't do well with anger. Fourth, being right has never set me free. I loved being right, because I was taught as a young girl, be right, be right, and you hold your ground, and you will, you will be tough, except that being right has never given me freedom. Never. Um, I don't live to recover. I recover to live. So I am literally recovering one day at a time so that I can live a very big, full life. And for the newcomer in the room, I have a big, full, incredible life, far bigger than I ever imagined. And I will share with this room and the 100,000 people listening, I unexpectedly had a heart attack four months in February of last year, four months into being entirely recovered from all the foods and from working the steps. And I believe God waited for that moment because the first thing I thought is I've had an extraordinary life. 
The second thing I thought was I would like to die recovered. Like, if I'm going to die, this is how I want to die because I'm recovered. Because I was clear. I had made amends. I had looked. I could look anyone in the eye. The fourth thing I said was get up because no one is coming to help you. <laughs> and the fifth thing I thought was um, you've done things much harder like th- than this, i.e., get in the rooms of OA so you can get through this. And I got through it. Um, but I, I don't, I no longer have the luxury of being resentful. I am resentful on a regular basis. I have to work step 10 on it all the time because I can't, I can pile those resentments up. I can make a whole set of truths about why you are, your way you are and blame you and why I'm justified. I don't have that luxury anymore. Um, if I pick up today, I don't know if I'm ever coming back. I just don't. Um, the opposite of addiction is connection. And that I'm truly connected to the people in these rooms, to God, to my kids, to my family. And I will tell you, it's really hard because I was taught not to be connected, to be alone. And it's painful to be connected. I don't love being vulnerable. And I use the phone a lot so that I could keep a little barrier between me and you. And when I had a big 40-pound, 50-pound barrier around me, it worked really well because people were like, oh, she has issues because I was wearing them. Mm-hmm. And now I don't have that. And so being vulnerable is really scary. And I'm 53 years old. I felt like Molly Shannon. I'm 53. What did you say? I'm 53 years old. I've been in these rooms 33 years, longer than half my life. And I'm still learning how to connect. Um, I believe that God brought me to OA and OA brought me to God which is that I always had a very deep spiritual life. I believe God always wanted for me bigger than I wanted for myself. But what OA gave me was the ability to peel away all those defects and all those drugs that I used in order to be truly in flow with God. Um, My head is a dangerous neighborhood, and I don't go there alone. I can tell myself so many things and really believe them. And so every morning I wake up, I write, here are the lies I'm telling myself today. And then I say to God, tell me the truth. And every morning the lies are shocking me. Like, they shock me every morning. Like, I've eaten the exact same thing. I've had the same food. And I tell myself, I am so fat this morning. That's the mental twist. Nothing's happened except the lies I tell myself. Um... A good day is when everything goes my way and I'm abstinent and recovered. A great day is when nothing goes my way and I'm abstinent and recovered. I've learned that deeply. Um, I want to take some questions because I think it's really important. But what I just want to close with is that um, some people get recovered and they say, oh, the previous 32 years I wasn't in recovery. That's not what I think. The day I walked into these rooms and admitted to God and to another human being, I'm a compulsive overeater, began a journey that has profoundly changed my life. That journey has taught me about the kind of physical foods that I can and cannot eat. It's taught me about the kind of emotional needs that I have, the friends that I can tolerate and embrace, the friends that I can't have. And it's taught me about God, about really trusting God. I would say that my goal for my life is to 100% trust God. Every day, I'm closer to 90%. I'm still in a tug of war sometimes, and that causes me to wake up in the middle of the night and have anxiety. 
turns out I had a heart attack because of anxiety and a few other things. But all of that does not lead me to believe that I'm not on the right path. That the minute I stepped into these rooms, I knew that I was in the right place because I was a compulsive overeater of the most dramatic kind. And I believe that when Bill wrote the book, he wrote it for every single addict. And that the big book has given me a tool and a pathway in order to live free of the addiction. And today, by the grace of God, I do. So we have about 10 minutes. I thought I would take questions about my prayer life, about my sponsorship, about sponsees, whatever is appropriate. And I'm just all grateful to all of you. So thank you. Francesca. So oh, much. am I not to say the name? Um, thank you. So I'm curious if you're comfortable sharing this second chapter of your journey, I'll call it. Um, how, if at all, has it impacted your relationship with your partner and or your children? So I love that question. How has my second half of my OA journey impacted my partner and my, the second half of my journey in OA or my second half of my journey in OA? In OA. So it's really interesting that you ask that because when I, on November 1st last year, when I started with my food plan, my husband turned to me and said, another food plan. Oh, fun, (laughs) fun, fun, fun. And about, I had my heart attack and about two months ago, I made very serious amends to each member of my family through when I did my ninth step. And I thought even my youngest kid who was 11 at the time would be like, yeah, mom, it's fine. He had a list for me of how he thought. And my husband said to me a few months ago, I will never, ever comment, discuss, challenge you about your OA program again because you finally are at peace. And I don't know what happened this year, but this recovery was where I think you wanted to be your whole life. And I will never mention it again. And he doesn't. And I do think that it's dramatically changed, but I don't think, I think the 32 years got me to be willing to do this second chapter. And I think the second chapter is the next 32 years, God willing. But I do think it's dramatic. It's also made me much more raw in the world. And so I'm unwilling to tolerate people, um, jobs, and things that I used to tolerate with an extra sugar-free cookie or an extra sugar-free this. Um, So I'm much more raw, but I think that's softening too. But I have a better relationship with my husband than I've had in our 21 years of marriage this year. Not supposed to say anything. Thank you so much. Um, when you walk into a difficult situation with your family or a family member in law, how do you prepare? What do you do? How do you work with challenges or resentments? So, I have a lot of resentments every day. I mean, I. Oh, how do I walk into situations that are difficult and challenging with people that I don't like or when I know it's going to be full of uh, charged energy? So, first of all, I call my sponsor before. And I bookend it by calling my sponsor after. I used to call my sponsor and give her my day-to-day life every day. My sponsor does not know any of my day to life. All she knows is me working the steps. So I come to her with all my resentments. If I'm walking into a charged situation, I have a lot of resentments that I already have to work through. So I have a resentment sheet. I work through the resentment sheet. And there's situations where I have to, before I go someplace, I have to do 10 resentment sheets, give them away, call someone, and really have to work it hard. Because if I'm already charged, I know I'm walking into a minefield. So I do a lot of resentment work beforehand. And I also bring my 
resentment sheets with me and I go to the bathroom and I write resentments in the bathroom, which is really funny because I was at work the other day and I was literally in the bathroom scrawling and someone, my work wife came in and she literally was like, are you writing in there? (laughs) And I was like, yes, I'm just taking a few personal moments. But I have so much resentments because I'm an angry person. There's a lot that I have to be angry about. That doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean that I'm an unfortunate person. I'm actually a very grateful, loving, kind person. It just means that I grew up with a lot of rage, and that was what I learned. And now I'm learning how to set it in its correct proportions and correct place. That answers. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sherry. Could you talk about your 10th and 11th steps? Do you follow a specific format? Yes. So how do I work my 10th, 11th, and 12th steps? So my 10th step, I work very specifically with a particular one sheet that says I have resentment at the cause and where was I dishonest, selfish, self-seeking, or fearful. And then um, I look at what are the fears. Then did I turn them over to God? Then I ask myself, what would God have me be? Not what, what would God have me do? I'm a doer. I want to do things, like a little hamster. What would God have me be? Would God have me be honest, empathetic, understanding, kind? And then I immediately turn my uh, my head to someone else in need of recovery. Eleven, I do this prayer meditation in the morning and prayer meditation in the evening. I'm working on every hour alarm trying to go off that I sort of calm down for five minutes and ask for God to walk in the room, to join me. I do this thing where I let God walk in the room. It's very hard for me. I'm a very compulsive worker because my addict is compulsive. So I can turn anything. So when I'm at work, I'm all in. So every five minutes to the hour, I stop, I pray. And sometimes it's as simple as like, God, help me surrender because I don't want to surrender. I want to stay in work, right? And that's as simple as it is. But I'm constantly doing that throughout the day. I have a three o'clock where I call someone a sponsee for a check-in. So I'm constantly being reminded to pray because I forget very often. And then 12, I'm always working with um, two sponsees, one that is nearing the end of the steps, one who's at the beginning of the steps. And then um, I send my food and I send my inventory into my sponsor every night. She sends me that back and then I send it to all my sponsees so they can see what my inventory, and I do it all from the big book. My inventory is um, when we retire at night, we we act, we look and see if we were dishonest, selfish, self-seeking, um, or afraid, and what could we have done better. I just go straight out of the big book. Um, there's an app, actually, that's great, and I just fill out the app and then send it forward, and um, I live in 10, 11, and 12 every day. I do not go to bed until I've done that inventory in my, my food inventory. Uh, I send my food and my emotional inventory. I don't go to bed until I've done my 10th. I, I can't because... Otherwise, I'm carrying stuff into the next day very dramatically. Yeah. Um, thank you for your share tonight. And um, I'm super new, seven days into this program. Welcome, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Yay. And I was really sorry for your comment that you have many foods that are triggering to you. Yeah, that would scare any. Don't be jarred. No, I was like, okay, I took yeah. a deep breath. But Don't be jarred. Because I'm so new, I'm really abstinent from sugar right now. But. Um, I'm just curious how you know that other foods are triggers. Are those just foods you compulsively overate? I mean, so, so how do I know what foods were triggering me? So my first abstinence was popcorn and frozen yogurt. It wasn't even sugar. Because when they said to me, can you put down frozen yogurt and popcorn for one day, I literally thought to myself, no, I can't. And so my first abstinence was putting down popcorn and frozen yogurt for a day. 
Um, and I couldn't believe it when I put it down for one day. I couldn't believe what God had done for me because I had never been able to live without it. In the 33 years in these rooms, a lot more has been revealed to me. And what I wish for everybody and for you and your seventh and eighth day is that you just join the journey. It will all be revealed. And it may be that all you need is popcorn. And that's your abstinence. Everybody's entirely different and their abstinence is entirely different. I don't believe food is the problem. Food was the solution. And for each person, that allergy is very different. It'd be like, I'm the most allergic to bees and peanuts and cashews. Not everybody in this room is. Everybody's allergy is different. So the food allergy, what makes us a compulsive overeater is the allergy combined with the mental twist. But the allergy is very different. So when I say to people, like, what, when people ask me what my food plan is, I refrain from telling them. Because the truth of the matter is, I don't want to scare people. And frankly, I can't eat a lot of foods because I'm actually allergic to them, which I didn't know. Um, until I actually put them down and discovered that I truly had allergies, um, which I think God was trying to tell me physiologically, but I wasn't listening because I was too busy controlling. So, yeah, I think we have. Um, how do you deal with like fear of the future slash wanting to control? So, how do I deal with fear of the future and wanting to control? So, by living in ten, eleven, and twelve, I don't have a lot of time to fantasize about the future because. I'm constantly looking at the day. I'm constantly being back in the day. What did I do well? What what do I want to work on? How do I pray and meditate and work with someone else? And working with someone else, that 12-step every day, keeps me entirely grounded. Because my head wants to be like, when I'm president and when I'm this. It's like so insane, right? Like I used to be so far ahead of myself. And I have a big thing on Tuesday that I have to do. And I'm so lucky that I don't even a million things could happen before Tuesday. And I used to say that and never believe it, but then I had a heart attack. And I will say that that was the great equalizer and humbler of my life. Because the day I had the heart attack, everything changed. And I could say it's the before and after. Because I really do live one day at a time now. And the fear of the future is still there. But what I do is I ask God to be in charge of that. And then the minute that fear comes up, I work with, the new, with someone in the program. The minute working with someone else gets me out of myself, mm-hmm. which was the entire problem. Mm-hmm. So. That's fine. Oh, yeah. Woo!